0: Section Two of Limbo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Doc D L Martin. Limbo by Aldous Huxley. Farcical History of Richard Greenow, Chapters Two through Five. Two. Cantaloupe College is perhaps the most frightful building in Oxford, and to those who know their Oxford well, this will mean not a little. Up till the middle of last century, Cantaloupe possessed two quadrangles of 15th century buildings, unimpressive and petty, like so much of college architecture, but at least quiet, unassuming, decent after the accession of victoria the college began to grow in numbers wealth and pride the old buildings were too small and unpretentious for what had now become a great college in the summer of 1867 a great madness fell upon the master and fellows they hired a most distinguished architect bred up in the school of ruskin who incontinently raised all the existing buildings to the ground and erected in their stead a vast pile in the approved moro-venetian gothic of the period the new buildings contained a great number of rooms each served by a separate and almost perpendicular staircase and if nearly half of them were so dark as to make it necessary to light them artificially for all but three hours out of the twenty-four, this slight defect was wholly outweighed by the striking beauty from outside of the Neo-Byzantine loopholes by which they were euphemistically lighted. Prospects in Cantaloupe may not please, but man, on the other hand, tends to be less vile there than in many other places there is an equal profusion at cantaloupe of firsts and blues. There are union orators of every shade of opinion and young men so languidly well-bred as to take no interest in politics of any kind. There are drinkers of cocoa and drinkers of champagne. Cantaloupe is a microcosm, a whole world in miniature, and whatever your temperament and habits may be, whether you wish to drink or row, or work, or hunt. Cantaloupe will provide you with congenial companions and a spiritual home. Lack of athletic distinction had prevented Dick from being, at Aesop, a hero or anything like one. At Cantaloupe, in a less barbarically ordered state of society, things were different. His rooms in the Venetian gazebo over the north gate became the meeting place of all that was most intellectually distinguished in Cantaloupe and the university at large. He had had his sitting room austerely upholstered and papered in gray. A large white Chinese figure of the best period stood pedestaled in one corner and on the walls there hung a few uncompromisingly good drawings and lithographs by modern artists. Fletton, who had accompanied Dick from Aesop to Cantaloupe, called it the Cerebral Chamber, and with its prevailing tone of brain-colored gray and the rather dry intellectual taste of its decorations, it deserved the name. Tonight, the Cerebral Chamber had been crammed, the cantaloupe branch of the Fabian Society, under Dick's presidency, had been holding a meeting. Art in the socialist state was what they had been discussing, and now the meeting had broken up, leaving nothing but three empty jugs that had once contained mauled claret and a general air of untidiness to testify to its having taken place at all. Dick stood leaning an elbow on the mantelpiece and absent-mindedly kicking. To the great detriment of his pumps, at the expiring red embers in the grate, from the depths of a huge and cavernous armchair, fletton pipe in mouth, fumed like a sleepy volcano. I like the way Dick," he said with a laugh, "the way you went for the arty crafties. You utterly destroyed them. I merely pointed out what is sufficiently obvious: that crafts are not art, nor anything like it. That's all. Dick snapped out the words. He was nervous and excited, and his body felt as though it were full of compressed springs ready to jump at the most imponderable touch. He was always like that after making a speech. You did it very effectively, said Fletton. There was a silence between the two young men. A noise like the throaty yelling of savages in rut came wafting up from the quadrangle on which the windows of the cerebral chamber opened. Dick started. All the springs within him had gone off at once. A thousand simultaneous jack-in-the-boxes. It's only Francis Quarles' dinner party becoming vocal, Fletton explained. Blind mouths, as Milton would call them. Dick began restlessly pacing up and down the room. When Fletton spoke to him, he did not reply or, at best, gave utterance to a monosyllable or a grunt. My dear Dick, said the other at last, you're not very good company tonight, and heaving himself up from the armchair, Fletton went shuffling in his loose, heelless slippers towards the door. I'm going to bed. Dick paused in his lion-like prowling to listen to the receding sound of feet on the stairs. All was silent now. Gott sei Dank. He went into his bedroom. It was there that he kept his piano, for it was a piece of furniture too smugly black and polished to have a place in the cerebral chamber. He had been thirsting after his piano all the time Fletton was sitting there. Damn him! He drew up a chair and began to play over and over a certain series of chords. With his left hand he struck an octave G in the bass, while his right dwelt lovingly on F, B, and E, a luscious chord beloved by mendelssohn a chord in which the native richness of the dominant seventh is made more rich more piercing sweet by the addition of a divine discord g f b and e he let the notes hang tremulously on the silence savored to the full their angelic overtones Then, when the sound of the chord had almost died away, he let it droop reluctantly through D to the simple, triumphal beauty of C-natural, the diapason closing full in what was for Dick a holy, ineffable emotion. He repeated that dying fall again and again, perhaps twenty times. Then, when he was satiated with its deliciousness, He rose from the piano and, opening the lowest drawer of the wardrobe, pulled out from under his evening clothes a large portfolio. He undid the strings. It was full of photogravure reproductions from various old masters. There was an almost complete set of Grutz's work, several of the most striking Ari Sheffers, some Alma Tudima some Leighton, photographs of sculpture by Torwalsen and Canova, Beckland's Island of the Dead, religious pieces by Holman Hunt, and a large packet of miscellaneous pictures from the Paris Salons of the last 40 years. He took them into the cerebral chamber where the light was better and began to study them lovingly, one by one. The Cézanne lithograph, the three admirable etchings by Van Gogh, The little Picasso looked on, unmoved, from the walls. It was three o'clock before Dick got to bed. He was stiff and cold, but full of the satisfaction of having accomplished something, and indeed he had cause to be satisfied, for he had written the first four thousand words of a novel, a chapter and a half of Heartseas Fitzroy, the story of a young girl. Next morning... Nick looked at what he had written overnight and was alarmed. He had never produced anything quite like this since the days of the quarrels incident at Aesop. A relapse? He wondered. Not a serious one in any case, for this morning he felt himself in full possession of all his ordinary faculties. He must have got overtired speaking to the Fabians in the evening. He looked at his manuscript again and read, daddy do the little girl angels in heaven have toys and kittens and teddy bears i don't know said sir christopher gently why does my little one ask because daddy said the child because i think that soon i too may be a little angel and i should so like to have my teddy bear with me in heaven sir christopher clasped her to his breast how frail she was how ethereal how nearly an angel already! Would she have her teddy bear in heaven? The childish question rang in his ears. Great strong man though he was, he was weeping. His tears fell in a rain upon her auburn curls. Tell me, Daddy, she insisted. Will dearest God allow me my teddy bear? My child, he sobbed. My child. The blushes mounted hot to his cheeks. He turned away his head in horror. He would really have to look after himself for a bit, go to bed early, take exercise, not do much work. This sort of thing couldn't be allowed to go on. He went to bed at half past nine that night, and woke up the following morning to find that he had added a dozen or more closely written pages to his original manuscript during the night. He supposed he must have written them in his sleep. It was all very disquieting. The days passed by, Every morning a fresh installment was added to the rapidly growing bulk of Hartsey's Fitzroy. It was as though some goblin, some lob by the fire, came each night to perform the appointed task, vanishing before the morning. In a little while Dick's alarm wore off. During the day he was perfectly well. His mind functioned with marvelous efficiency. It really didn't seem to matter what he did in his sleep, provided he was all right in his waking hours. He almost forgot about Hartzies, and was only reminded of her existence when by chance he opened the drawer in which the steadily growing pile of manuscript reposed. In five weeks, Hartzies Fitzroy was finished. Dick made a parcel of the manuscript and sent it to a literary agent. He had no hopes of any publisher taking the thing, but he was in sore straits for money at the moment, and it seemed worth trying on the off chance. A fortnight later, Dick received a letter beginning, Dear Madam, permit me to hail in you a new authoress of real talent. Heartseys Fitzroy is great. And signed, Ebor W. Sims, editor, Hildebrand's Home Weekly. Details of the circulation of Hildebrand's Home Weekly were printed at the head of the paper. Its average net sale was said to exceed three and a quarter millions. The terms offered by Mr. Sims seemed to Dick positively fabulous, and there would be the royalties on the thing in book form after the serial had run its course. The letter arrived at breakfast. Dick cancelled all engagements for the day and set out immediately for a long and solitary walk. It was necessary to be alone to think he made his way along the seven bridges road up cumnor hill through the village and down the footpath to bablock hythe thence to pursue the course of the stripling thames haunted at every step by the scholar gypsy damn him he drank beer and ate some bread and cheese in a little inn by a bridge farther up the river and it was there in the inn parlor surrounded by engravings of the late queen, and breathing the slightly moldy preserved air bottled some three centuries ago into that hermetically sealed chamber. It was there that he solved the problem, perceived the strange truth about himself. He was a hermaphrodite, a hermaphrodite, not in the gross, obvious sense of course, but spiritually. Two persons in one, male and female. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, or rather a new William Sharp and Fiona MacLeod, a more intelligent William, a vulgar Fiona. Everything was explained. The deplorable quarrel's incident was simple and obvious now. A sentimental young lady of literary tastes, writing sonnets to her widow Guardsman and what an unerring flair Mr. Sims had shown by addressing him so roundly and unhesitatingly as Madam. Dick was elated at this discovery. He had an orderly mind that disliked mysteries. He had been a puzzle to himself for a long time. Now he was solved. He was not in the least distressed to discover this abnormality in his character. As long as the two parts of him kept well apart, as long as his male self could understand mathematics and as long as his lady novelist self kept up her regular habit of writing at night and retiring from business during the day the arrangement would be admirable the more he thought about it the more it seemed an ideal state of affairs his life would arrange itself so easily and well he would devote the day to the disinterested pursuit of knowledge to philosophy and mathematics with perhaps an occasional excursion into politics. After midnight, he would write novels with a feminine pen, earning the money that would make his unproductive male labors possible, a kind of spiritual sitenur. But the fear of poverty need haunt him no more, no need to become a wage slave, to sacrifice his intelligence to the needs of his belly. Like a gentleman of the East, he would sit still and smoke his philosophic pipe while the womenfolk did the dirty work. Could anything be more satisfactory? He paid for his bread and beer and walked home, whistling as he went. 3. Two months later, the first installment of hartsey's Fitzroy, The Story of a Young Girl by Pearl Belairs, appeared in the pages of Hildebrand's Home Weekly. Three and a quarter millions read and approved. When the story appeared in book form, 200,000 copies were sold in six weeks, and in the course of the next two years, no less than 16,000 female infants in London alone were christened Hartzies. With her fourth novel and her 250th Sunday paper article, Pearl Berlairs was well on her way to becoming a household word. Meanwhile, Dick was in receipt of an income far beyond the wildest dreams of his avarice. He was able to realize the two great ambitions of his life, to wear silk underclothing and to smoke good, but really good, cigars. 4. Dick went down from Cantaloupe in a blaze of glory. The most brilliant man of his generation, exceptional mind, prospects, career. But his head was not turned. When people congratulated him on his academic successes, he thanked them politely and then invited them to come and see his memento mori. His memento mori was called mister Gottenham and could be found at any hour of the day in the premises of the Union, or if it was evening, in the senior common room at Cantaloupe. He was an old member of the college, and the dawns in pity for his age and loneliness had made him, some years before, a member of their common room. This act of charity was as bitterly regretted as any generous impulse in the history of the world. Mr. Glottenham made the life of the cantaloupe fellows a burden to them. He dined in-hall with fiendish regularity, never missing a night, and he was always the last to leave the common room. Mr. Glottenham did not prepossess at a first glance The furrows of his face were covered with a short, gray, sordid stubble. His clothes were disgusting with the spilt of many years of dirty feeding. He had the shoulders and long-hanging arms of an ape, an ape with a horribly human look about it. When he spoke, it was like the sound of a man breaking coke. He spoke incessantly and on every subject. His knowledge was enormous, but he possessed the secret of a strange, inverted alchemy. He knew how to turn the richest gold to lead, could make the most interesting topic so intolerably tedious that it was impossible, when he talked, not to loathe it. This was the death's head to which Dick, like an ancient philosopher at a banquet, would direct the attention of his heartiest congratulators. Mr. Glottenham had had the most dazzling academic career of his generation. His tutors had prophesied for him a future far more brilliant than that of any of his contemporaries. They were now ministers of state, poets, philosophers, judges, millionaires. Mr. Glottenham frequented the Union and the Cantaloupe Senior Common Room and was, well, he was just Mr. Glottenham, which was why Dick did not think too highly of his own laurels. 5. What shall I do? What ought I to do? Dick walked up and down the room smoking furiously and without at all savoring its richness one of his opulent cigars. My dear, said Cravester, for it was in Cravester's high ceiling Bloomsbury room that Dick was thus unveiling his distress of spirit. My dear, this isn't a revival meeting. You speak as though there were an urgent need for your soul to be saved from hellfire. It's not as bad as that, you know. But it is a revival meeting, Dick shouted in exasperation. It is. I'm a revivalist. You don't know what it's like to have a feeling about your soul. I'm terrifyingly earnest. You don't seem to understand that. I have all the feelings of Bunyan without his religion. I regard the salvation of my soul as important. How simple everything would be if one could go out with those creatures in bonnets and sing hymns like Hip hip for the blood of the lamb, hurrah, or that exquisite one. The bells of hell ring ting-a-ling-a-ling for you, but not for me. For me, the angels sing-a-ling-a-ling. They've got the goods for me. Unhappily, it's impossible. Your ideas, said Cravester in his flutiest voice, are somewhat gothic. I think I can understand them, though of course I don't sympathize or approve. My advice to people in doubt about what course of action they ought to pursue is always the same. Do what you want to. Cravester, you're hopeless, said Dick laughing. I suppose I am rather gothic, but I do feel that the question of ought as well as of want does arise. Dick had come to his old friend for advice about life. What ought he to do? The indefatigable pen of Pearl Belair's solved for him the financial problem There remained only the moral problem. How could he best expend his energies and his time? Should he devote himself to knowing or doing, philosophy or politics? He felt in himself the desire to search for truth and the ability, who knows, to find it. On the other hand, the horrors of the world about him seemed to call on him to put forth all his strength in an effort to ameliorate what was so patently and repulsively bad. Actually, what had to be decided was this. Should he devote himself to the researches necessary to carry out the plan, long ripening in his brain, of a new system of scientific philosophy, or should he devote his powers and Pearl Belair's money in propaganda that should put life into the English revolutionary movement? Great moral principles were in the balance, and Crevester's advice was, do what you want to. After a month of painful indecision, Dick, who was a real Englishman, arrived at a satisfactory compromise. He started work on his new synthetic philosophy, and at the same time joined the staff of the Weekly International, to which he contributed both money and articles. The week slipped pleasantly and profitably along. The secret of happiness lies in congenial work, and no one could have worked harder than Dick unless it was the indefatigable Pearl Belairs, whose nightly output of 5,000 words sufficed to support not only Dick, but the Weekly International as well. These months were perhaps the happiest period of Dick's life. He had friends, money, liberty. He knew himself to be working well, and it was an extra, a supererogatory happiness that he began at this time to get on much better with his sister Millicent than he had ever done before. Millicent had come up to Oxford as a student at St. Mungo Hall in Dick's third year. She had grown into a very efficient and very intelligent young woman a particularly handsome young woman as well. She was boyishly slender, and a natural grace kept on breaking through the somewhat rigid deportment which she always tried to impose upon herself in little beautiful gestures and movements that made the onlooker catch his breath with astonished pleasure. Wincing she was, as is a jolly colt, straight as a mast, and upright as a bolt. Chaucer had as good an eye for youthful grace as for mormals and bristly nostrils and thick red jovial villainousness. Millicent lost no time in making her presence at St. Mungo's Felt. Second and third year heroines might snort at the forwardness of a mere fresh girl, might resent the complete absence of veneration for their glory exhibited by this youthful bajana. Millicent pursued her course unmoved. She founded new societies and put fresh life into the institutions which already existed at St. Mungo's to take cocoa and discuss the problems of the universe. She played hockey like a tornado, and she worked alarmingly hard. Decidedly, Millicent was a force, very soon the biggest force in the St. Mungo world in her fifth term she organized the famous st mungo general strike which compelled the authorities to relax a few of the more intolerably tyrannical and anachronistic rules restricting the liberty of the students it was she who went on behalf of the strikers to interview the redoubtable miss prosser principal of st mungo's the redoubtable miss prosser looked grim and invited her to sit down Millicent sat down and, without quailing, delivered a short but pointed speech attacking the fundamental principles of the St. Mungo system of discipline. Your whole point of view, she assured Miss Prosser, is radically wrong. It's an insult to the female sex. It's positively obscene. Your root assumption is simply this, that we're all in a chronic state of sexual excitement Leave us alone for a moment and we'll immediately put our desires into practice. It's disgusting. It makes me blush. After all, Miss Prosser, we are a college of intelligent women, not an asylum of nymphomaniacs. For the first time in her career, Miss Prosser had to admit herself beaten. The authorities gave in, reluctantly and on only a few points, but the principle had been shaken and that as millicent pointed out was what really mattered dick used to see a good deal of his sister while he was still in residence at cantaloupe and after he had gone down he used to come regularly once a fortnight during term to visit her that horrible mutual reserve which poisons the social life of most families and which had effectively made of their brother and sisterly relation a prolonged discomfort in the past began to disappear They became the best of friends. I like you, Dick, a great deal better than I did, said Millicent one day as they were parting at the gate of St. Mungo's after a long walk together. Dick took off his hat and bowed. My dear, I reciprocate the sentiment, and what's more, I esteem and admire you. So there. Millicent curtsied and they laughed. They both felt very happy. End of Section 2